Francesca Ecuyasi is a writer you read with the windows open. Her work embodies what it means to be attentive to life, in spite of the fact that, as she admits in this interview, paying attention is overwhelming. Francesca's novel Butter Honey Pig Bread was one of the most critically acclaimed works of fiction in 2020. It's a book that shows the deep love that motivates Ecuyasi's art, life, activism, and writing. She expands on why she feels drawn to stories about pleasure, joy, and reconciliation, and also why she's driven to write stories that show us how to love properly and heal even as the world is constantly ending. She talks about the lengthy improvisational process of putting her staggering book together, how the book became so much more immersive through this process, and how she writes with the hope of understanding, or I suppose with the faith that the reader will work to understand what she's trying to communicate. She talks about intimately knowing sisterhoods and wanting to write women's experiences into the world, using the conventions of fiction to move, as she puts it, toward a merging that is also a kind of unraveling. Well, you know, um, I invited you for a number of reasons, but, you know, I, I, like many people, found out about your work because of the um, Canada Reads competition, um, but also just the, the amount of attention that the book has, has received. So I'm, I'm really excited now that, you know, I've, I've had time to really digest the book, um, to use a food metaphor. Uh, and to talk to you about it. I mean, I don't want to spoil the book and I don't really want to necessarily, um, you know, spend this entire time trying to get you to kind of uh, un unlock all the secrets of the book. Uh, I'm really just interested to hear about the writing process. Um, and my first question is more or less about the writing process. You know, I recently attended a, a series of online lessons about writing and uh, hosted by Alexis Shotwell. And, you know, one of the most interesting ideas that uh, Shotwell gives us is this idea that one of the most helpful ways to stay motivated to write or fight against certain habits that prevent you from writing is to have like um, a metaphor in mind for the act of writing. You know, you, you told Prism Magazine in an interview that for you, you know, it's a pleasure to write, even when it's challenging. Um, and, you know, when he was championing your, your book for Canada Reads, Roger Mooking described you as an architect. Um, so I guess I'm wondering, do you have uh, a kind of metaphor uh, uh, for thinking, I guess, about the act of writing, a metaphor that you use to describe what you're doing when you're writing? Like, do you think of yourself as making a meal, for example? Anything like that come to mind? You know, I haven't really thought about it like that. Um... Mm -hmm. Because I am, you know, I haven't been terribly disciplined. I've just sort of <laughs> come to writing um, for pleasure. Mm -hmm. um, but I do think, I don't know where I heard this, and I think I must have said this in an interview, but uh, I can't remember where I heard it, but something about approaching your craft like, um, like a lover or like you're having a love affair. Mm -hmm. um and so you always kind of you know the joke is that like married people who are having love affairs always can somehow find time <laughs> um and i like that i like the thought of treating my craft like a love affair um 
Yeah. Yeah, and it, to, it preserves the pleasure of it. Like, I think, you know, that's that's the whole goal, uh, in fact, of Shotwell's advice, is to try and, especially for academic writers, I think, restore some of the actual pleasure, the thing that brought you to writing. Because, like, we reach a point where it seems as though there is this ascetic ideal when it comes to writing, that it should be painful, um, <laughs> you know, in, in the way that maybe some people imagine food preparation should be like a labor, just purely a labor. Um, you know, I see interesting like echoes of, of your attitude toward writing in the ways that your characters think about uh, food preparation. Mm. Taye suddenly decides to make food. Like there's this improvisational quality to every moment where she decides to like make a cake or, or empanadas. And, and so, you know, I think it sounds as though what you describe as a lack of discipline in writing is really an attempt to preserve almost like the improvisational element of writing, you know? No, I, I love that idea of, write, of you know, approaching writing as improvisational mm. and with love. Yeah. Um, mostly because, I mean, the reason I say it's a pleasure is because I, since I was small, kind of escape in my into my imagination. I think a lot of people, if not every human being, does that. Um, and so writing is sort of the, the fun part of like returning to reality is like getting to transcribe what you, (laughs) Mm -hmm. transcribe what you experience, you know? So like imagining, like imagining the imagination is this like (laughs) vast and new landscape. And when you recede or when you spend time in there, you just collect really cool data or, I mean, the inverse of that is just like watching people and watching, being attentive to life. You've spoken to this in other places, your your kind of relationship to stories. Like you told CBC Books that um, for you, reading is about igniting the imagination and that, mm-hmm. you know, books, books as you, as you say, are about sort of um, providing these worlds. But also you say that books offer hope for pu- future possibilities and that stories um, are an important source of comfort in strange times. Um, it got me thinking about the Canadian critical race theorist, Catherine McKittrick, mm-hmm. um, who writes a lot about storytelling, uh, being heavily influenced by Sylvia Winter, mm-hmm. who you know is, is really stressing that human beings are, of course, biological and chemical, but also as crucially, you know, uh, we tell stories of ourselves. Yeah. And, you know, McKittrick, though, in thinking through Winter's ideas, has this lovely line where she says, the story cannot tell itself without our willingness to imagine what it cannot tell. Yeah. That there's this, you know, radical open-endedness or vulnerability um, involved in the act of giving a story. And, um, you know, Cambirinacci, she experiences uh, that exact thing herself, you know, whenever she begins to think about the future. Mm-hmm. And, you know, in working through Butter, Honey, Pig Bread, I was really struck by how often the story was actually challenging my own personal reluctance to kind of give in to the voices in your story. Mm-hmm. These lavish sensory descriptions of like cutting melon on page 143 you know, they're almost overwhelming. What can books like yours, which uh, clearly dwell very deeply in the sensuous realm, Mm -hmm. teach us in a way about 
um, taking the patience to properly sink into a story rather than just looking for data. You know, like when I read those details, I'm reminded of McKittrick's sense that there's a lot of reciprocity involved in storytelling. It's not this one way street. Mm -hmm. Oh, so everything you just said was making me think of, I mean, I think the term we use for it now is mindfulness, Right. but for example, sometimes when I'm outside, I'm like (laughs) completely sober, just like looking at the sky, it's kind of overwhelming just how, (laughs) you know, how vast it is. Or just paying attention, I think, is overwhelming. Hmm. Paying attention just on a walk, everything is kind of awesome when you look really closely. Yeah. And I think that's my favorite thing. (laughs) Because most days, most moments, I am preoccupied with, like, anxiety, future, past obsession, you know? Yeah. Um, But when I drop in, I'm just like, everything is really awesome. And so for me, writing is dropping in, which means quite a lot of the time it's difficult because if I have to really be present, not just to like what my body is sensing, but where my mind and my imagination want to go, it can feel overwhelming if it's, if, you know, if I don't feel well or aligned, you know, mm-hmm. it can be overwhelming to occupy the space, but it's kind of what I require <laughs> So it's what what is required of me by the pro, you know what the process requires of me, and I think in turn what my writing requires of readers, mm-hmm. because I know that thing of reading through a story or even honestly a recipe book, mm. and my eyes glaze over and I'm like, ugh. Once the the words change to like numbers just to indicate like um an amount like a cup full or a quarter cup full, my mind just resents that so much. And so the practice of actually forcing myself to read a full recipe or a full sentence and envision it and like be so present to it, um, yeah, it's it becomes a requirement. And I think mm-hmm. um, I think I've kind of forced that on readers who are going to enjoy my work. <laughs> yeah, I was gonna ask about that. The ways in which the structure of your book does seem to force readers. Um, into a different kind of rhythm Mm -hmm. that is about, as you say, paying attention Mm -hmm. um, and allowing oneself to be uh, overwhelmed by Mm -hmm. the scale, the immensity, the complexity, the sublimity of things. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, there's a certain art to noticing those things Mm -hmm. uh, that your book demonstrates. But also, like I say, in the actual um, structure of the book, it's, it's like embodied there's so much switching of tenses in the book, mm. uh, switching of pronoun use and perspectives throughout without any signposting to the reader. Um, as you say, you're kind of forcing the reader to do this reciprocal work. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I felt like there were, there were the only signposts in the book were like two words that you give the reader, um, intense and mm. negotiating. You know, there's this moment where Taye says in a letter, intense is a good word. And then negotiating it as well as like underlined as a really important verb. Mm. Um, and I think in both cases, like you're you're kind of like giving the reader the 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 code for how to sink into the text. Like it is meant to be intense mm-hmm. and it is a constant kind of negotiation. Mm-hmm. Um, and I guess, you know, uh, um, I wondered how you 
develop the structure? I know you wrote the book over a number of years. Mm-hmm. Um, so obviously the experiments that you're, you're playing with uh, came into form slowly. Um, but ultimately the effect is that the reader can't easily determine the order of events in the mm-hmm. book mm-hmm. or effortlessly synthesize the sense data in it. <laughs> um, and I guess, you know, to put it in a question, was that decision on your part about like just deliberately defying the reader's expectations? Were you trying to leave room for your own improvisation during the writing process? Or was it about trying to make these really subtle, sumptuous juxtapositions in the book that couldn't be uh, uh, that you couldn't produce in a linear way. Mm-hmm. Well, first, I want to thank you for like just your reading of of this work. Um, Thanks for writing it. Oh my god, I, I really appreciate it. <laughs> um, and and yes, I I was experimenting, and I wanted to leave room for improvisation. Mm-hmm. Um, I wanted to, you know, because I didn't know, I, I didn't have a clear picture. Um, I don't, I don't always, when I write, I don't always have like, um, like, I don't know what will happen, <laughs> sure. um, especially with this book. And I'm working on something else now where I'm, I'm trying to know what will happen so I can plan because, you know, <laughs> mm-hmm. capitalism requires production. <laughs> and I'm like, oh God. Um, but yes, I wanted to leave room for improvisation and I want, and I, I don't know really, I think a lot of what I'd been reading since childhood gave me permission to play. Um, and like, I guess I suppose my only goal ultimately, like with any story is that, you know, that you see what I'm saying, <laughs> that you can see what I'm trying to say. So like whatever language experiments, whatever illustrations I need to make, however much I'll play and and you know just take risks as long as as like a reader will read it and get it (laughs) you know yeah the point is never to be um opaque or I don't know the word inscrutable yeah yeah no no the point is actually to make you feel it as much as possible like Mm -hmm. feel it in your body as well um Mm -hmm. and I think that I think the time worked to my favor, um, the time to just uh, experiment and play, um, because, and I think that, I mean, I hope, I hope for more of that room in my life. Yeah, and, you know, um, it, it's an interesting kind of fine line that you have to um, find between that level of experimentation um, that, you know, is, produces a more uh, challenging experience than just something that is going to be like generic and conventional while also maintaining some degree of like coherence. You mm-hmm. know? And I, I kind of see a connection there to um, the exposure that you got through Canada reads and, mm-hmm. and you know, being uh, listed, uh, you know, for a number of literary prizes. Like what Canada reads seems to suggest is that there's, you know, room for books like yours to be read widely and, Danelle Cito talks about how like these mass reading events like Canada Reads or like Oprah's Book Club are really good for encouraging reading, but they don't always encourage uh, the reading of challenging, potentially life-changing texts. Right. And I guess, you know, like, do you feel as though these mass reading events like Canada Reads are, are different in some sense? Like, 
they're not purely populist uh, reading competitions. They're not like American Idol for books. They are curated and people put a great deal of thought into um, sort of defending these books. But do you, I don't know, do, what kind of um, value do you see in this format? Yeah. Um, and what do you see as like the potential, maybe, I don't know, problems with that kind of promotional uh, approach? So prior to being on Canada Reads, I didn't actually know how it worked, but I found out that the, like the champions, they pick the book, they pick, and I think they can pick up to like a decade or or, or more or less a decade um, prior. So anything that, any book that was released um, within the last 10 years. Um, And so it really comes down to taste and also what the the champion would be aware of like what books they might be aware of right right um and even language in many ways because um i don't know i haven't you know i haven't followed Canada reads for a long time but i don't know if there's any francophone um books or if there's like a separate one so i think there are all these like limitations um but i think knowing that the the champions get to pick whatever book they'd like to defend, that was really exciting to me because it just made me that much more grateful for the fact that Roger li- like genuinely liked my book. Mm-hmm. Um, Clearly. And they, and like, they do a lot like the, those, those sorts of, um, you know, <laughs> mass reading events mm-hmm. do a lot for promotion. You know, I, I think my book might not necessarily have been a type of book that certain people would just on a whim pick up based on the cover, based on the title. Um, but because of Canada Reads, because people just couldn't stop hearing about it, um, it informed, um, or I, I believe it like made a wider <laughs> range of people more interested. And, and half the, the time just getting people to read your work is a thing because people hear the themes or they hear the synopsis and, you know, even like, even a, a plot summary of a book it doesn't really tell you what your experience of the book will be like because it's not just about the story, it's about how it's written. Anyway, all that to say, I have a great experience. Sure. <laughs> and, you know, I also think, yeah, you had a great experience. I, I, I love that, um, you know, you can go on YouTube and pull up a video of you speaking to Roger about the book. Like, it, it isn't just about... Um, the author functioning almost like a, like a, you know, just a commodity, like Oprah's, yeah. book, club, Oprah's book, book club occasionally felt like that, right? Like mm. Oprah had kind of positioned herself um, as a like kingmaker in the publishing industry. Mm. And so the revealing of any book, it was, it was primarily commercial. Whereas mm-hmm. Canada reads, it feels like it is it more explicitly cultural, right? It's about someone right. speaking to how this story is potentially transformative, like in specific ways, you know? And, and I, you know, I, I think Butter, Honey, Pig Bread is a book that um, uh, certainly deserves uh, wide readership, but uh, I think like, you know, it's a book that really deserves to reach really diverse publics too. Like mm. people in a lot of different spaces, you know, not just, um academic or literary but mm-hmm. i think uh, popular as well mm-hmm. um because Thank you. yeah like and and because it is such a invigorating visceral sort of story um and because too it's about you know um people 
uh, uh, finding not just themselves, but uh, which just feels like a cliche finding themselves, but um, <laughs> finding and uh, finding that they fail to find themselves. Right. Mm-hmm. And then through a degree of failure, they kind of learn um, how to problematize basically mm-hmm. certain uh, ways of being in the world as, mm-hmm. as, you know, female, male, uh, um, you know, the, the tension around body size in the text uh, is palpable too, yeah. you know, and I, I certainly want to come back to that. Um, but I guess I, you know, I, I did want to zoom out and uh, take another look at the question of, of storytelling in relationship to, it, it, you know, history more broadly and, and, and not just one history, but the history of uh, colonialism in particular mm. um, and, and, you know, within the black diaspora, you know, Raoul Peck has this, this sprawling new HBO documentary series called Exterminate All the Brutes, which is an attempt to very poetically capture the history of colonization. Mm. Um, and at one point Peck, you know, a Haitian director, you know, speaks to the, the stories that we tell about human history. And he says, human beings participate in history, both as actors and as narrators. Mm-hmm. Um, those who seek history with an upbeat ending, redemption, reconciliation, may search in vain. Mm. Um, and so Peck throughout this, this documentary is sort of invested in what Frank Wilderson calls like, I guess, Afro-pessimism, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and, and that is not your dominant mode of, of like storytelling. But I wonder to what extent um, you've read Afua Cooper's work. Um, you know, who at one point was a Nova Scotia's poet laureate. Yeah. Uh, her book, Black Matters, uh, her book of poetry really, you know, spoke to me as a kind of like um, companion to your book, right? Mm. Um, the end of that book is this poetic reflection on the ways that music especially mm. uh, captures, you know, the vitality of the Black experience you know, there's this poem called Congo Songs by the Rivers of Bab- Babylon, where mm-hmm. she says, we will not sing songs of grief and exile, uh, mm-hmm. but songs of strength and sunshine, uh, songs of the certainty of us living. Mm-hmm. Um, and like that refusal is to me what marks butter, honey, pig bread. Um, and, and I guess, you know, to make it into a coherent question, um, you know, I, I wanted to specifically ask about the investment in music in the text mm. right um you know you describe dancing as a kind of sensual inquiry uh you know this 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 idea that we're kind of discovering each other music is such a central thing to uh Taye's appreciation of of life mm-hmm. um i wondered if you could speak to um you know the effect that you think uh communicating this relationship to music has um uh you know for our like relationship to that character, if that mm. makes sense. Yes, yes. Um, I'm a fan of Afro Cooper. Um, I, I want to say professor. <laughs> um, right. But yes, I'm I'm a huge fan. And Joy is a big uh, theme in basically uh, any, well, I want Joy to be central to everything I do. Mm-hmm. Um, and I and I again I don't think that's innovative. <laughs> I think um, mm-hmm. it's what I grew up seeing. So like, I grew up in Lagos, and it genuinely is like a city of contradictions. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's just like so much immense like p- 
controversy right next to some incredible, like, <laughs> just over-the-top wealth and, you know, like, lots of extremes in that way. So, like, seeing suffering um, daily alongside celebration daily. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just, yeah, it's what I know. It's what I know a lot of Africans. I mean, I, I'll go as far as to say Africans. I can't speak for everyone. Um, but as an African person, it's what I know as a Nigerian person and as a black person, you know. Um, and but but it doesn't it, it doesn't end there, really, because I'm part of a community here where, you know, when we get like awful news or like intense, awful things happen. We cook together mm. and we find a way to have a laugh, you know, it's just genuinely um and so I suppose, like, the inclusion of celebration, of joy, and of music in this way, it wasn't, it wasn't intentional. It just um, seemed obvious, you know, in writing about mm. a character like Tae in the communities that she found herself in. Um, but even, even for Cambirinachi, um they were dropped, both of those characters, I think, were dropped into, like, this, their senses, even though Cambrian Nacho is very much straddling, like, the spiritual and, and physical realm. In her time, being in the physical realm, like, she was, like, dropped into her senses, and so music is a great way to, or well, food and music, actually, <laughs> I yeah. think are great ways to, to like, incite that in, in the reader. Because I imagine most people can relate to that, you know, even people who struggle with, um, like, food. Um, everyone can relate to, like, what if, hopefully, what it feels like to have a meal <laughs> or to share a meal um, with somebody you like or to be reminded of a moment by hearing a song or, or a smell. So it really was a a rather unintentional tool to, like, yeah, connect readers to, like, the sensual Mm-hmm. Um, and bu- music also works as like a marker of time so I was very interested I, I mean I come from a family of, of like artists so <laughs> so um, and my brother's a music producer so I learned kind of the, the reason I laughed when I just said that was because nothing I'm saying is original like I'm just imagining my brother listening to this and being like yeah, I told you that, you know. Um, sure. But, you know, it may not be original or, or, you know, unique to the experience of growing up in Nigeria to be submerged in so much music. Yeah. But it does, it does feel as though you're trying to stress in the book that, like, there are, as you say, music is kind of a time machine. And there are groups like um, the Lejado sisters yeah. uh, that speak to the characters in a really profound way. And in a way that gives us access to a particular time and place, which I think is the thing about music, you know, and, and to obviously to some, some extent about food, um, you can return to experience of joy through that, that object. Um, so, you know, one of the things I wanted to ask about is um, the, you know, you, you mentioned in an interview that you, you, you're drawing on your own experiences in the book, uh, but especially because in it, you are, quote, just writing about women, which I thought was like such an interesting kind of blunt statement. Um, you know, why was it necessary for you to write about women or inescapable for you to write about women? I, you know, 
at one point in the book, Patricia Hill Collins' uh, Black Feminist Thought is mentioned, mm-hmm. which is a book that talks about how important um, a, a political and social impact it would it would have to um, have more women act as, you know, socially uh, a centering force, you know, mm-hmm. uh, rather than fetishizing political leaders or mm-hmm. spokes, spokesmen or something. Uh, Hill Collins talks about center women, women that center us. Um, was part of the purpose in writing your book to create a space to celebrate women, to, to celebrate like all the kin keeping and care labor that they do? Or did you have other goals in mind? Well, so I did, I really didn't have goals in mind, but right. I think what happened was I essentially was writing what I knew and, mm-hmm. you know, just, I, I was raised by my grandparents, but my grandfather died when I was 10 and my grandmother's still alive. So she was, you know, central to my caretaking and my aunties really. And so I just really was raised by women. Mm-hmm. <laughs> now it's an all girls school and, um, and so I feel I I just felt more interested in writing about women, but also more um, experienced with knowing women, with knowing sisterhoods in different ways. Um, and of course, I have brothers and I love them. <laughs> and I love the men in my life. They're lovely. Um, uh, but I don't I don't have the same kind of confidence in writing a a a male character which is not to say that people have to write from this way but for this particular book and at the time I started writing and up until the time I finished I was very interested in in just how these women would live their lives Mm -hmm. and the truth is you know with our understanding of gender um particularly and either of the twins could have been they could have you know that one of them could have been like not a woman, you know, could have been like a gender fluid person or, or a non-binary person. Um, genetically, though, they needed to be identical, like at, at physically, uh, just as part of the story. Mm. Um, other, <laughs> other than that, I just was interested in writing about women. And because there were two, like, kind of, you know, one-dimensional bad men characters, I was interested in like having the other men that ended up being like central to the story. I wanted them to be just like generally good, <laughs> like complicated and nuanced, but ultimately like not evil mm-hmm. um, because there were two just straight up evil, you know, no, no nuance, no context characters. Mm-hmm. Um, but ultimately, yeah, it's a story about relationships between between these women uh, as sisters and as, you know, daughters and mother, um, and also some of the friendships there, right? So Isabella and, and the rom- the romantic relationships um, as well. Absolutely, yeah. Um, and, and like, I, I, I appreciate what you say about the male characters in the book, you know? Like, I was really struck by the moment where uh, Taye comes out to Bobby. Spoiler yeah. alert. Um you know, <laughs> because I kind of anticipated there to be some degree of hostility, you know, and, mm. and that's not how you wrote that character. And there was something, you know, reassuring, I guess, about that. Um, but, you know, the, the thing about the book is that it is certainly about um, relationships between women, but relationships, relationships that are, you know, made 
complicated, made difficult, mm-hmm. uh, you know, uh, uh, that don't become by virtue of any sort of natural reason difficult, but instead are made hard by life. Mm-hmm. Like there's a point where um, Kambiranachi realizes that it's, it seems as though it's her realization that her mother has been made hard by life. Um, and mm-hmm. and she, she thinks the same thing about her own, um, and you don't diagnose it, uh, uh, her own madness, that mm. she is she's made mad by life. Um, mm. And this is, you know, through all throughout the book, really, this idea that um, when relationships fail um, between women who are trying to keep kin, it is often because of these external pressures, patriarchy, mm-hmm. capitalism, whatever it may be. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is just like happening subtly in the book. And I guess, you know, I wondered, um, like, the, one of the major ways that that seems to play out in the book is through Taye's Our Lady figure. Mm-hmm. Um, and I guess, you know, I, I wanted to ask, like, does this idea of having an apparition friend need to be seen as, like, more understandable to people? You know, like, this is something mm-hmm. that Taye uses um, to help her through loneliness and grief. And it, you know, for me, it reminds us of what Judith Butler calls the fundamental sociality of embodied life. Um, but what's going on in the development of this relationship between Taye and her imagined companion? Is it a comp- composite of all of these women in her life or, or what is it? Could, I, I said I wasn't going to ask you to decode any <laughs> secrets and then I straight up did. This is, again, a limitation that I have as a fiction reader, I think, right? Like I'm trying to decipher it. I'm trying to make that, uh, uh, the appearance of our lady cohere. (laughs) I, um, I love, I really loved writing our lady because my, my grandfather was very devoutly Catholic and Mm. I remember him traveling to see apparitions, you know, Mm -hmm. and I didn't know because I was a child, I didn't know that was like a sort of global phenomenon Mm -hmm. where people would like go on pilgrimages to see where there was allegedly an apparition of the Virgin Mary or people would see like images of the Virgin Mary on toast or, you know, things like that. Mm-hmm. And so I just think that's fascinating. And it, 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 it comes back, I think, to my understanding of how we as humans, we, we just tell stories to make sense of what's happening. <laughs> like mm-hmm. <laughs> just to make sense of like existential feelings. I think we, created God we started telling stories about God in different across the globe different communities different cultures throughout history just have a story about God mm-hmm. and um and I think that's just you know we just we tell stories that's what we do I think that's one of the fundamentally human things mm-hmm. that maybe makes us all other than being embodied and you know I don't know mm-hmm. having red blood <laughs> makes us all uh, the same Mm-hmm. Um, and so I love writing Our Lady because really what we're doing when we see apparitions, wh- whether or not we see them, it doesn't matter. Like whether or not it's actually a, a spiritual phenomenon or I'm imagining it because I need to, my experience of it is the same. I, I'm seeing this thing. Um, and I wanted to gift that to this character who is just incredibly lonely. Um yeah, and Our Lady really is not, I, mean, I didn't write her to be like a stand-in for any of the women missing in Ty's life. Hmm. I generally wrote her as 
this apparition that Taya may or may not be imagining. <laughs> mm-hmm. It may or may not be happening just objectively, but it doesn't really matter to the story because it's it's what this character needs to propel her story forward. Yeah, no, it gives me some insight into the the kind of i guess literary function of our later in the, in the book and throwing us in the middle of this this experience that Tay herself is having of trying to process the grief i think um i thought it worked really well like it, it um and and fits with the character i mean drugs are a significant part of Taye's maturation like it should be said mm-hmm. um yeah. it it's it's throughout the entire book and i haven't seen uh, much discussion of that in in the you know press around the book, and I wonder to mm-hmm. what extent that just speaks to a still existent taboo around you know using drugs, um, yeah. even in a country that, that has legalized cannabis. You know, it's <laughs> difficult to talk about how uh, it that drug affects you, and and mm-hmm. it's you know in the book it plays out uh, um, in interesting ways in terms of the connection between. Uh, Taye and Kehinde, um, you know, mm-hmm. there, there are moments where Kehinde is so eloquent, and, um, you know, so where words are flowing freely for her and she doesn't clearly need the help of drugs to give an account of her experience. She, she seems to have a unique access to like unmediated self-expression. Um, mm-hmm. And, and, you know, so that, that interplay is so interesting, like throughout the book, and I, you know, again, to to ask you, I guess, about how you, um, as the architect of this book, how you structured it, um, I wonder how you came up with the system that you use for just titling chapters uh, by citing either it sounds like who is speaking or whose perspective is kind of orienting the chapter. Um, yeah. how, how did you come up with that? First of all, oh my goodness, I read so many books like that growing up. Right. <laughs> like so many like um, young adult books or I don't know if Sweet Valley High does that. Maybe a Babysitter's Club. I'm not sure. See, I just am not, I'm not as much of a reader <laughs> of fiction, I guess. But like, and so I was thinking, yeah. I was like reading more into it than perhaps mm-hmm. I should have. Like at the end of the book, for example, you know, there's a chapter that's titled Taye and yet Ginde's voice is central to that chapter. And then in the next section, Taye's voice takes over and yet it's named after Ginde. And I wondered, like, again, reading into it, whether that was about their specific connection or about how we're actually, as people, we are constantly, you know, created constantly, every day, as it were, for uh, for another, right? In this case, mm-hmm. for our sister. Um, yeah. Were you playing with that conceptually at the end of the book? Yes, yes, in a way, because things were kind of unraveling. Right. Um... There's a lot of momentum at the end of the book, yeah. Yeah, and there was a, a part where, you know, it was, I, I don't know, I think it must have been kind of section, but then she was talking about, uh, you know, um, Taya's story. She was talking about what Taya was telling her. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that because food and kind of the sharing of, of secrets eventually, and maybe not secrets, but just the, the small gifts of what they were thinking mm. were the only... Because most of everything that happened was in the past. And so in the present, those moments were tying and they are talking. Mm. Um, I just wanted to um, kind of start to merge them a little bit because so yeah. much of what 
so much of what the book is about is their separation. Yeah, uh, that really communicates uh, on a number of different levels, I think, at the end of the text. Um, that's, yeah, that's the sense that you get, right? And it's happening really subtly at the at the actual, like, texture of the text, which is interesting. Um, I had some more questions, actually, about, um, you know, I, I wanted to ask you about your relationship to Halifax now at the current moment. Um, but, you know, I, I mentioned uh, my reading of Kehinde's voice in the text. And, you know, I, the, the other thing I want to ask about was Kehinde's body, right? She, she talks a lot about her body. Um, and as a, as like an academic who's written a lot of, on fat studies and, and um, body diversity in terms of like, um, you know, um, this contemporary obsession, it seems, with like the obesity epidemic, I'm, I'm really interested in texts like uh, Butter, Honey, Pig Bread that are actively trying to provide, I think, an antidote to certain like normative conceptions of like what constitutes a healthy or sexy body. I mean, like, you know, Charmaine Nelson, uh, who you, uh, you may know is, you know, Canada research chair in transatlantic black uh, diasporic art at NASCAD. Yeah. She writes about this uh, in relationship to the history of art mm-hmm. and pop culture that, you know, valorizing mm-hmm. the black body and experience for her is about like the ability to project an image of the body and have it confirmed outside of oneself. Mm-hmm. And she's, she's also, you know, uh, arguing that racism uh, basically normalizes a, a certain like hypersexualized version of black femininity that actually mm-hmm. ironically denies sexuality, sexual agency. Mm-hmm. I was thinking about all of this stuff when I was reading your um, your book, but also looking at some of you know the art that you've you've done. You know, do you feel as though Gehinde's you know internalized fat phobia is something that by the end of the text she's sort of worked through to some extent, like that she's developed a, a degree of self love by the end of the text, um, or is that process ongoing for her? Well, yeah, like I, I, I think it's ongoing for her because I think it's ongoing for, I think anyone with a body, yeah. <laughs> you know, like this um, fat phobia is like such a, only in, in recent years have we been acknowledging that it's not actually a sin to be fat mm-hmm. and actually maybe it's really messed up the way the fat people are dehumanized mm-hmm. in media and in the medical, you know, only in the last few years, anyway, at least only the last few years have I been aware of it, is what I should say. Um, because growing up, even on the continent, even in, you know, in a country where, like, big bodies are are um, very normal and very um, valued, you know, it's, there was still all that fatophobia, you know. It's so bizarre, and it's, it's very bizarre. Yeah. Um, but... But yes, I think it's ongoing for this character um, because she never reached a point of, you know, she struggled with her embodiment mm-hmm. um, initially because of this traumatic experience. And I think for many people who've been through, you know, whether in childhood, childhood or in adulthood, like when you experience a sort of body violation, 
um, it just manifests in different ways. Mm. I think for, you know, for this character manifested in like incredible self-loathing around her body as well as, um, you know, an eating disorder and which is more implied. It's not explicit. That's right. Yeah. Um, but again, you know, this is what's, what I witnessed in others, you know, what I witnessed by just like <laughs> being alive and being a woman. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Yeah, I also wanted to, you know, because I know so many people who have this experience and who also still seek pleasure. Mm-hmm. I didn't. I didn't want to as much as I wanted to stay away from stereotypes. And I think particularly around like African literature, some stereotypes around like, um, you know, poverty porn or like trauma porn or. Or like hardship, having characters go through hardship, having black women go through hardship. Um, I I wanted to I didn't want to re- replicate anything that would feed into those narratives, but I also didn't want to limit <laughs> the, the experiences of my characters out to fear. So I wanted the queer character to be a hedonist who likes sex, who is free, and you know, in this way that some people perceive that kind of freedom as immoral. Um, and I also wanted this character, Kane, who had experienced this horrible traumatic thing to, and still going through very real responses to a traumatic thing to also want love and a family. And even though she goes through depression, she still wants to, you know, like the world is kind of always ending. And here we are still trying to be pretty. Mm. <laughs> and by pretty, I mean like make beautiful things, mm. you know, make beautiful music and, and you know, fall in love <laughs> and have like imaginative sex you know that's beyond you know, the purpose of reproduction right. um and yeah so i suppose i just i wanted to illustrate that i wanted to illustrate like the fucked up intense horrible stereotype making things um as well as like a reality of like lushness and abundance <laughs> yeah and again it, you know it's it's embodied in the text you know the the text is a living um you know testament i think to that that goal you know a certain um willful vitality that you you know also communicate on your instagram you know this um i was really inspired by a, a post that you um made recently about you know just investing in soft things in a hard world you know that i think that comes through in gende's envy for the self-love of fat women who as she puts it drape their luscious curves without embarrassment Mm -hmm. she she wants to love herself um and Mm -hmm. loves those who do i think it unfolds so subtly right the fact that as you say, Kinde is is constantly drawing this one photo over and over again, um, mm-hmm. and the reader is left to decipher like what is it about this particular photo and her des- desire to circumscribe the limits of her body to find the mm. limits of her body. Mm. It does feel as though you know the character finds herself to, uh, some version of self love by the end of the book. Mm-hmm. I, I thought, especially because she just, she asserts that she is being treated unfairly at the airport. Like there's this moment where she makes it clear that, you know, this, this behavior is discriminatory. It's racist. And she names it as such. Mm-hmm. And that seems like a really 
significant moment too in the book, you know, like, um, and it, it got me thinking again about Charmaine Nelson's, um, you know, writing on racism. She has a, a, this brilliant introduction to a book called Racism A, which is about racism in Canada, where she says like, in Canada, those that are victimized by racism are often not assumed to be sufficiently credible to talk about their own experiences in an objective way. Mm -hmm. Um, And it feels like Kehinde by the end of the book has really like developed a sense of how to like authority authoritatively, you know, describe her social reality, which she just didn't have before. Mm -hmm. And, and I guess, you know, I, I wanted, I I was hoping you could tease out some of these moments in the book where you do talk about, um, white supremacy, like there's this moment where Farouk is described as, as Skyping Taye and, and ranting about the fucked up way that white supremacy slips a, a chip on your shoulder. Mm-hmm. Um, these moments are just dropped in, but it's not like heavy handed necessarily. How did you balance, I guess, politics with storytelling maybe is one way of asking the question. Mm. Yeah. Well, to be, yeah, I have to give so much credit to my, my editor because because I, I, you know, some of those characters are politically engaged. Farouk, for example, even though, you know, he, we don't hear from him directly. Uh, Salome as well. Mm-hmm. Um, some people in Thai's life. Yeah, they are politically engaged people who would be using that sort of language, who would be talking about those things. Um, but the reality is, like, you know, when, when, I, meet, when I meet people who or even I myself as perhaps somebody who would be using that social language, I mean, I still have to, like, just have chips and, and like, play with a kid in my life, you know? Like, mm-hmm. it's... Uh, and I want I wanted the book to really um, kind of illustrate a fullness or, like, a, three, a three-dimensional or 360 view of what a life can be, which is not always righteous, you know? Mm-hmm. But I just understood that readers would understand and and that, you know, like hearing hearing the term white supremacy wouldn't be alienating and they would hear it and recognize and they would recognize, you know, for example, you know, what could have been contributing to Kanye's incredible depression, like winter, you know, experiencing winter, extreme, no, no uh, Quebecois winter for the first time as a black person from from the African continent, you know, I think there's just some, um, a lot of room for understanding or, or room ho- hoping for understanding. I'm hoping that readers will, will meet the characters and kind of understand that growing up maybe in France. And I, you know, and again, a lot of this perhaps is the privilege of, of being able to learn certain things. I know that, you know, people from the Maghreb in are not having a great time in France in terms of racism, you know, <laughs> like what the kind of racism that North Af- North Africans or like Arab people from the African continent face in in France is is extreme. And so this character saying that, considering how I've described his um, features and complexion, I imagine people understand or will take the time to understand. So in many ways, this is not a exactly what you said it's definitely not a quick book Mm, mm -hmm. and I'm actually asking people to like research a bit you know some of my favorite books have given me the chance to learn in that way 
like I, I always think about the brief and wonderful life of Oscar Wow. I think I think that's what it's called by Juno Diaz. Mm. And how much learning I learned so much about Puerto Rican history. I learned so much about like so much so many Spanish words because I I would go get to a place and be like, Oh, I don't know what this is. I should look it up. Mm-hmm. Um which maybe some people don't like. <laughs> and that's okay. Um, but I like that. <laughs> Well, you know, those folks will become literary scholars and provide the footnotes for future editions <laughs> of your book, you know, um, there, and there are, there are numerous places where I was mentally providing those footnotes, you know, like the, um, the, oh my gosh, the way that you talk about the glaring scars of gentrification in North End Halifax. <laughs> Right. You know, you're, so people, yeah. Palagonians know that, you know, people who grew up here know that. You know, I have, <laughs> I have firsthand experience of that area and how as you, you know, you're you're joking, there's this like comedic tone in that section of the book, but you're saying like gentrification and its scars have to be ignored in order to appreciate buzzworthy spaces, you know, oh, yeah. fancy food and drink, that kind of thing. Um, oh, absolutely. You know. <laughs> And that's all kind of just dropped in, uh, in the text, right? Like, don't ask where the black and indigenous people are. Like you literally end a chapter by saying that, um, (laughs) you know, and, and I mean, like the, the discussion of gentrification is deeply historical, but Mm -hmm. also like, I think emotional Mm -hmm. in the book, right? Like you, um, you talk about the, the twins attachment to their house in Lagos, Mm -hmm. um, and, and you talk about Lagos as this, this beast of a city um, that, you know, you can't live anywhere and, and be entirely in a bubble mm-hmm. and just ignore um, the teeming life all around you. And I, you know, I, I connected it to this film, um, The Last Black Man in San Francisco. Have you ever mm-hmm. seen? No, but I've heard of it. Should I, should I watch it? <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. It's, it's a, you know, gorgeous film. Um, you know, it is about a young black man trying to reclaim his childhood home, uh, which is this expensive kind of Victorian house in a gentrified neighborhood in San mm. Francisco. And he, he claims to be, you know, in a mythic way, the last black man in San Francisco, like mm. you know, various forms of um, basically real estate dis- discrimination, mm. uh, racial capitalism is, is disappearing those that, have a, a, a claim um, to these neighborhoods. And it, it seemed to me like you were playing with the same sorts of um, uh, feelings when you, and, and histories when you describe um, uh, Africville, right? There's a moment mm-hmm. toward the end of the book where Taye writes a letter uh, about Africville that turns into this fantastical expression of a des- desire for everyone to be well, to have a home and to restore their relationships with one another. Mm-hmm. And I mean, like, ultimately, um, you know, the book functions at times like a, a prophecy for a future care society, a, a society mm-hmm. oriented around care. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I, I, I certainly don't want to spoil the ending of the book, but it does end mm-hmm. with this resolute tone of, of hope of being driven to find the felt experience of freedom and, and connection. Mm-hmm there's this sense that maybe the world does bend toward justice. Was this your, your dream, your, your vision, or, you know, please tell me it was your, your prophecy (laughs) or 
you know, who do you, who do you hope or, or think this book could potentially heal? Yeah. I, I mean, it's definitely an emotional book and I'm definitely mm-hmm. an emotional writer <laughs> because I'm an emotional person. And, and, um, and I mean, there's so much, the whole entire book is based on, on this like uh, perceived betrayal, this, this mm-hmm. painful thing. And, and the whole thing is about building to reconciliation, right? Building to, to meeting each other again. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I, I hope for that. The news is unbearable these days. And I don't know, again, if it's these days mm-hmm. or all the days. And I'm just now, in the last two years, because we've been in lockdown just now, like tapping in but it's just um it feels like things are yeah accelerating yeah toward a critical moment yeah it really does and it's um i just i you know maybe this is what happens when you grow up watching tv and (laughs) movies but i just like i just know this movie ends well you know (laughs) it has to because otherwise maybe we should all just stop having babies right now <laughs> yeah it feels that way and and there is a that level of of you know climate anxiety in mm-hmm. particular mm-hmm. you know there is this there is a moment in fact where you um describe you say perhaps it's god's wrath that comes down in harsh rays to burn us now <laughs> and you know without being didactic you are i think identifying this, you know, uh, the the IPCC's current code red for humanity, right? Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. this thing that's kind of in the back of our minds all the time, mm-hmm. and and subtending the pleasure that we still seek every day. Um, mm-hmm. And it, it's interesting that you describe it like a movie because I kind of I posed it to Judith Butler in in these terms, right? Like Judith Butler has this kind of emancipatory politics of nonviolence, where she she admits it is completely utopian to imagine that a society like ours could potentially be nonviolent, <laughs> but it's precisely for that reason that we need to believe in it. It's the impossible. I mean, she, she actually um, disagreed with this reading that I did of her book, um, <laughs> that it's like the impossible Hollywood ending to this mm-hmm. horrific uh, race to the bottom. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I, I appreciate the, just the kind of the willful hope in the book. I don't know where I heard this. I don't know. I, I have to cite my sources. So after this, I'm going to research this and, and email you. But I read somewhere that hope is a practice or something yes. of that, something of like that. And I really think that like, you know, I'm doing a lot of reading, like mental health reading, right? And what I'm learning right now is that we have a story and we live out that story. We have narratives about ourselves, about how we're perceived, about what things mean. Essentially, everything is neutral, and then we give it meaning based on this narrative, mm-hmm. is what I'm learning, which is like so terrifying yeah. because that's too much power. Sure. I'm just like, no, what? How am I in yeah. charge of this? Like, I can't be in charge of telling the story of my own life, but mm-hmm. precisely, I am. Mm-hmm. And again, I don't say this ignoring like structural realities of like poverty and racism and like, you know, um, Mm -hmm. ableism. Right. right? Um, But 
I'm saying this sort of, we, even within that understanding that we external things ruin our lives. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> majority is like we give things meaning. And I think that we can learn anything. We can learn anything. We can be reprogrammed to be nonviolent and to be hopeful. And of course, it's unethical to experiment in human beings. So we can't ever know of any the re, any research that's happening around civil or peaceful societies. You know, any research happening on human human beings mm. about creating mm-hmm. peaceful societies. Mm. But I do think that stories are kind of what shape our culture. And I don't know. I just want more stories where everything isn't miserable, and queer people aren't just like, you know shameful and miserable and dying and black women aren't just like the bottom of the barrel treated nonsense and you know fat people aren't you know just a world where like maybe we make up and um maybe like we learn how to love properly and we have chances uh to learn and to make mistakes and we're not abandoned because I don't know, those are the stories I'm looking for to give me hope. And those are the stories I want to live out. I, I want to live that. I want to live a life where, like, if I make a mistake or if me and somebody hurt each other, we can we can heal back together, you know? Yeah. And a lot of, you know, as we just said, a lot of the news is, is not telling us that now. It's telling us really we should all be afraid and panicked and hiding in caves and stocking up on toilet paper so i don't want that <laughs> yeah that that it's too late these these ideas around like this kind of defeatist notion that it's either the situation is too complex or it's too far gone um we can tell a different story and in telling a different story, empower ourselves, I think, collectively to heal. Yeah, because we're not extinct yet, you know? Right. <laughs> and, and you know, uh, um, those in the Global South, especially, who are suffering, you know, under, quote, God's wrath or mm-hmm. anthropogenic climate change, mm-hmm. you know, th- they're crying out that, you know, th- this threat, it's not abstract. Yeah, it's happening now. It's happening, yeah, now. Um, and and so to be m- mobilized by that um, requires, and I think the idea is hope is a discipline. I think you were maybe quoting Miriam Kaba's uh, book, We Do This Till We Free Us, potentially. Um, it it can be, right? It, it can be, um, I think, when it, especially when it forms the uh the basis of like social bonds right Mm -hmm. um you know this is something that people experience in you know when they're dancing when they're experiencing Mm -hmm. live music together you know you're synchronized as a social body in that moment um when you when you share food together in an actual communal space Mm -hmm. not in a space that is partitioned by plastic barriers which we believed were necessary, but apparently just trap COVID into these oh, little no. small areas, right? So <laughs> apparently, yeah. So, you know, we're, we're increasingly cut off from one another. We've withdrawn from life to preserve it. But now it seems like we're going to have to actually relearn a lot of these elements of like sociality and connection 
Um, and so I think especially people who are maybe progressive or radical are, are hoping that this might be an opportunity for us to reassess those bonds, you know? Mm-hmm. I really appreciate talking with you and, and yeah, just talking about, about hope really and, <laughs> and, you know, things that I guess in a lot of interviews we generally mm-hmm. steer, where, steer away from like, like politics. And, you know, I understand that however you want to approach things, I have so much value for, I have um, so much respect for that. Um, but yeah, like it's kind of impossible, I think, to write about people, first of all, human beings and not write about the things that affect human beings. I mentioned Judith Butler earlier. You know, Butler has this idea that there's like a melancholic norm of disavowal that tells us just move past it. Just get over it. Yeah. <laughs> and Kimberi Nachi is, is, you know, toward the end of the book is quite adamant that that is uh, incomplete mm-hmm. and that there is, she says there is no forgetting. Yeah. There is no forgetting or moving quickly past trauma. But what you can do and what the book clearly advocates is connecting, is consoling one another and allowing oneself to be consoled, being, being open to that kind of love. Um, the moments where people are not, open to that kind of love like those are the moments where they completely unravel in the text um so the the message is clearly love each other um (laughs) it's more complex than that but that's no that's pretty much it (laughs) it's especially in those moments that your text uh, tries to inspire uh empathy so thank you so much for writing it it's an incredible book and i'll be lending it to many people thank you it's definitely very much a dream come true in all the ways i am mm. incredibly humbled by like just how well received it's being I, I it just really makes me want to keep writing and and just makes me want to tell everyone like write your book just write your weird little book you don't know you don't know if people will love it you don't know if the person who needs to read it will find it just do it so thank you 